Yeah, you know, my brothers and I growing up knew that he had been a soldier. We knew that he lost his leg in the war. And so, boy, he started pouring out these stories. And quite frankly, I don't know that my brothers and I believed him. But then when he passed away, we found uh, his military chest with 450 letters, three history books, his awards, signed autograph pictures from everyone from General Eisenhower to True Scott to Young to McCarr, and then began to put together, I think you're right, what is truly an incredible story. An excerpt from today's guest about an amazing World War II soldier whose story some have compared to a Forrest Gump-like tale. Author Walt Laramore is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. Today's guest is a prolific author and has written or co-written 40 books, 30 medical textbook chapters, and over 1,000 articles. His books have garnered a number of national awards and nominations, including finalist at the 2020 International Page Turner Awards. His latest book is called At First Light, and author Walt Larimore joins us now. Walt, welcome to the show. Rob, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to, great to have you. And this book is so unique and looks so amazing. It's actually about your father. Reading through the advanced materials, I was basically stunned at, at what an incredible soldier he was. Could you fill our audience in on, on what he did and his accomplishments? Yeah, you know, my brothers and I growing up knew that he had been a soldier. We knew that he lost his leg in the war. We saw the war medals in his office and the, the signed autographs from a bunch of different generals. But he never talked about the war, really, until his and mom's 50th wedding anniversary. I guess he got nostalgic and began to open up. It turns out that he had been a juvenile delinquent as a child. He was an only child. His mom and dad both worked. And as a latchkey child, he just got into a lot of trouble. So they mm -hmm. ended up shipping him off, him off to military school, Gulf Coast Military Academy, where he spent his high school years uh, graduating with honors just about the time the war began. And so he was actually sent to officer candidate school, OCS, when he was still 17, graduating when he was 17, and then commissioned on his 18th birthday as a second lieutenant sent away for training for a year. Um, amazing training, Rob. Initially got his paratrooper jump wings with the 82nd Airborne. Mm. And then under the 82nd was uh, transferred to the 326 Glider Infantry, spent a year training as a company commander and glider pilot, got his glider pilot wings, special training and weapons, mines, demolitions. And then just before being shipped out was transferred over to the 30th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd Infantry Division and shipped out to Anzio and ended up fighting over 400 days as the youngest frontline officer in Europe. So he was a second lieutenant on his 18th birthday, first lieutenant at 19, captain at 20, major at 21. And on the battlefield, being a frontline officer where, Rob, the, in the Southern Front, the average life expectancy of a second lieutenant was 21 days. And wow. he, he fought over 400 days, was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star with two Oak Leaf, uh, I mean, excuse me, with an Oak Leaf Cluster, Bronze Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, Purple Heart with two Oak Leaf Clusters, uh, turned down three Purple Heart nominations, 
uh, had the ETO campaign medal with four bronze stars and arrowhead, two presidential unit citations, the French Forger, the French Croix de Guerre with palm. But his most treasured award, his most treasured medal, like almost all the men he fought with, was the combat infantry uh, infantryman badge. Lost his leg literally one month before the end of the war on April 8th. Uh, then he spent a year in rehab where he's credited with starting equine therapy for recovering soldiers. Mm. And he fought then what he said was his toughest battle of his entire career. He fought the War Department policy of discharging all officers who were amputees. And he fought desperately to overcome what he saw as this highly discriminatory policy that in actuality saw officers with amputations as being um, less than fully human and definitely not fit for service with an officer. And he thought that was a travesty. And so, boy, he started pouring out these stories. And quite frankly, I don't know that my brothers and I believed them. But then when he passed away, we found uh, his military chest with 450 letters, three history books, his awards, signed autographed pictures from everyone from General Eisenhower to True Scott to Young to McCarr, and then began to put together, I think you're right, what is truly an incredible story. Definitely. And I want to ask about a little portion of his history, because I did a film on the World War II glider pilots, Silent Wings. Did he serve on any missions as a glider pilot? He didn't. Uh, he almost died. Now, the way they, they did the infantry training, glider training back then, he was at Alliance Air Base in Alliance, Nebraska. So they had the actual left seat glider pilots, if you if you would. And then the right seat uh, assistant pilot, if you were a glider pilot, would have been the company commander uh, mm-hmm. uh, or even the platoon leader, depending on these were the Waco uh, gliders. Oh, and yeah. so they could hold roughly up to 15 men or perhaps a Jeep with two or three men. And uh, they were actually being towed behind uh, one of the C-7. Rob, what C-47s? Been yeah. They were being towed behind a C-47, those nylon tow ropes, and got into some real bad turbulence. And actually, a, 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 a large tundra swan hit the glider pilot's uh, windshield broke through knocked the glider pilot out completely and there was so much turbulence dad had to pull the tow rope and really went into a a crash dive almost crashing almost dying in that in that glider uh those those were not the best (laughs) flying they called them flying coffins you remember that rob yeah uh, but when when they were getting ready to be shipped out, they left Alliance, went over to North Carolina to Fort Myer, getting ready to be shipped out. But because of his demolition training and because of what was happening on Anzio, uh, it was basically World War One trench warfare. He was transferred out of the 322nd into the 3rd Infantry Division, went straight over to Morocco, across northern Morocco and the train, then uh, up into Anzio where he began uh, – over 15 months of, of frontline fighting. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And one more comment about the, the gliders. They called every landing a crash. <laughs> <laughs> and and, the, and most, of them, most of them were. It, they were uh, basically, as you know, plywood coffins. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, it, was, it was something that he was quite proud of, of, of having those wings. He just never yeah. flew in combat in a glider. Yeah, I don't, I don't 
don't blame that, blame him for that, that's for sure. Uh, before we get into the actual book, your research on this took quite a long time, 16 years, and uh, I saw that in, the, in your notes, and uh, why was that? You know, I think um, it just took a long time, and, and I, the way I explain it is, is this, I'll, say, I'll, I'll, I'll tell people, what's D-Day? And of course, they'll remember Normandy. Well, those were the guys on the Northern Front, and of course, it was a terrible battle, horrible, but the guys on the Southern Front had five D-Days, in fact, right. the 3rd Battalion of the 30th Infantry Regiment had seven amphibious D-Days because they had two additional ones on, on Sicily. The Northern Front guys, 336 days in battle. The Southern Front guys, 913 days. And I'll ask people, what was the first European capital liberated? And most people will say Paris. And that was in August of 1944. But Rome was liberated two months before that, right. in June of 1944, by the Southern Front guys. And their mistake, if it was a mistake, Rob, was that they liberated Rome on June 4th and 5th of 1944. And when all of the papers in the U.S. were planning the, the, the huge headlines on June 6th, 1944, about the liberation of Rome, guess what happened? Norman, Normandy. Normandy. And... Everyone knows about the Battle of the Bulge, but almost no one knows about the Battle of the Colmar Pocket, where conditions were, they were worse than Valley Forge, they were worse than the Battle of the Bulge. In fact, when Stephen Ambrose talked about the Battle of the Colmar Pocket, this is one of my favorite quotes of, of his, uh, he says it was it was worse than, than the Battle of the Bulge, it was worse than Hurricane Forest. And this is what he said. He said, it was fought in conditions so terrible that they can only be marveled at, not really imagined. Only those who were there can know. More than once in interviewing veterans of the, of the January fighting, when I asked them to describe the cold, men involuntarily shivered. So, Rob, mm. I, had, I had 450 letters. I had three history books. I read 250 World War II books. But then I had to go to the battlefields. You know, I, I had to yeah. go to where the documents were. So I... I went to Fort Benning and Stewart, Fort Myers and Fort Belvoir, museums in Kansas City, Waco, New Orleans, Paris, France, Columbus, Georgia, Rome, Italy, Anzio, Italy, and then the archives, uh, archives in New Orleans, College Park, Maryland, mm -hmm. uh, the War College in Carlisle, the Army Heritage Education Center in Carlisle. Um, you and, went everywhere. <laughs> well, I did, and, and the and the. It was stunning, the detailed records, uh, radio transmissions of, of when dad lost his leg, um, the, the actual uh, uh, memoirs of soldiers, especially the Battle of Comor Pocket, the Battle of, of Maison Rouge. Almost no one knows about it, but it is the battle in which we literally could have lost the war. And the GIs held on by their fingernails. It was mm. a, a stunningly poorly undertook battle where the Germans almost completely annihilated the, the, the GIs of the, of the Southern Front. And then the most amazing, I think the most amazing record I found was the actual transcript of Dad's final appeal to stay in the Army. And, and Rob, it's, it's sort of like, you may remember the movie A Few Good Men, where the yes. character played by Tom Cruise faced down that crusty character played by Jack Nicholson. It was just, you can't forget that. Dad's final trial was very similar to that, facing down commanders who really felt that as an amputee, he was less than human. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, Hollywood feature film director Ron Maxwell will be here. It's rare that if I go to a public event that somebody doesn't come in and uh, comment uh, on either Gettysburg or Gods and Generals. And it's, you know, deeply appreciated, uh, you know, a, a person come up to me and, and make a comment on one of those movies. It's, uh, uh, it's meaningful to me. My interview with Ron kicks off our two-part Gettysburg narrative special, Voices from the Front, which you can hear over the July 4th weekend. And if you're enjoying this World War II episode, check out our earlier program about Ronald Spears and his band of brothers with author Jared Frederick. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. You'll find the link to that show in this episode's description. Was, before we get into the story of the mission, was he successful in having the military change their policy? He lost the battle, but won the war. So he was honorably discharged, uh, despite the support that he had from President Harry Truman, from General Young, from General Eisenhower, a sort of covert support. But it ended up, that policy ended up being changed so that now we can honor both the enlisted uh, men and women who lose uh, uh, limbs and the officers, understanding that they have great value as humans, great value as officers and military uh, personnel, and much that they can teach not just military personnel, but all of us. I think it's going to be very surprising for the listeners that there there was even a policy at that time. That... Yeah, especially how we honor our amputees, and, and should completely yes. rehab and completely honor these amazing men and women who go through so much and have on all of our behalf. I agree. Now, getting to the story of the book... Tell us a little bit about the mission and how he was called upon to undertake this amazing mission. Well, I think I know the one you're talking about, but there's so many missions. I mean, he was a platoon commander of a of, of an A and P platoon, so he he worked at night in the in no man's land in the in the front lines, taking ammunition and wire to the front, setting mines, defusing mines, then becoming a company commander. He took over for Medal of Honor awardee Maurice Footsy Brits. He took over his love company. Mm-hmm. He had to train mules to deliver deliver ammo and supplies at night, both on Anzio and then in the Vosges Mountains. Rescued thousands of horses at the Montalimar ambush in, in southern France. And in over 400 days of fighting, countless tip of the spear attacks, countless missions fighting frontline in Italy, France, Germany. I mentioned that the average second lieutenant lived 21 days. He fought 400 days. But I think what you're probably referring to is a mission that occurred just before the end of the war. Uh, Because he was an equestrian, a a world-class equestrian, uh, his commander, the commander of the 30th Infantry, was an equestrian. uh, At that time, Colonel McGar. General Truscott was an equestrian. Of course, General Patton was an equestrian. But there were rumors that Hitler had sequestered uh, the Lipizzan horses in Czechoslovakia. He, he of course, had uh, 
the, the policy of trying to develop the perfect humans, you know, the Aryan breed. Yeah. And for the Aryan, the perfect human, he wanted to have the perfect horse. And so starting in 1938, he had veterinarians across the Nazi empire sequester all of the royal breeds. So Andalusians and Frisians and Arabians, and thoroughbreds and Cossack stallions and Lipizzans were reportedly hidden in horse farms across Czechoslovakia. And the Russians, because of the Yalta agreement, the Russians were liberating Czechoslovakia, but because of the starvation in, in Russia, because of the underfeeding and undersupplying of the Russians, they were basically killing and stewing everything they could. Yeah. And so there were uh, 20, 20 so uh, Lipizzans that were in a trailer uh, being uh, sent away from the area of the Eastern Front, the Russians captured the trailer, killed the Lipizzans, and ate them. And so the Nazi vets that were in charge of the Lipizzans became very, very concerned, contacted the Americans. And so a secret mission was devised to take a Piper Cub, a pilot, and a soldier who was an equestrian and send them secretly 200 miles behind the lines into Czechoslovakia to see if these rumors were true. Were the Lipizzans there? And dad was chosen for the secret mission. He could not reveal his identity to the pilot or the pilot to him. And he was told that if they crashed, if they were captured, he would be AWOL. He would uh, lose his, uh, if he was killed, he would lose his life insurance uh, benefits. He would lose all military career. He wow. would basically be abandoned as, as AWOL, but made it behind enemy lines. Uh, the vet that was in charge of the Lipizzans met him. Dad actually got to ride a Lipizzan and identified <laughs> that, in fact, there were over 100 Lipizzans sequestered there brought that information out successfully. And that that led actually to what was later called Operation Cowboy. It was both a secret and illegal mission that General Patton approved to go in, set, set a cavalry unit in actually to walk the Lipizzans out of Czechoslovakia, save the Lipizzans and save that world famous breed. The story of operation of this operation became a movie in the 50s. Yeah, I did. It was called Operation Cowboy. Disney made the movie, and it was an absolute total bomb. <laughs> but, but but I think it would probably be a great movie now. Uh, Elizabeth Lett uh, came out with a book called The Perfect Horse about Operation Cowboy. That became a New York Times best-selling book. In 1964, a wildly popular tour of the Lipizzans occurred in the U.S. They became not only world-famous, but U.S.-famous. And then, uh, Rob, when Dad was fighting to stay in the Army, General Eisenhower and General Carr, General Young, brought him to Fort Myer in Washington, D.C. to, to fight the, the discharge that was coming. And he uh, became the executive officer for the Quezon Platoon and was called back in, in 1981 when 10 Lipizzans were donated to the Quezon Platoon at Fort Myer. Oh, Dad wow. and Mom were invited to attend and... Uh, those horses were, they became the white team uh, at, at, at Arlington. They were used in military funerals for, for decades. And in fact, they, they led the inaugural parade for President Ronald Reagan and for Vice President uh, George uh, Bush. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, so it was an amazing legacy of the Lipizzans that lives on till today. Now, your father, after the war and, and fighting the uh, 
Army policy. Did he stay in contact with any of these former commanders? Yeah, he did. Actually, uh, when he was in OCS, uh, one of his uh, trainers was uh, First Lieutenant Ross Calvert. And and it was against policy at the time, but they actually became really close friends and, and bridge partners. They ended up at, at, at Fort Benning playing bridge for money and, and <laughs> making money. And then uh, they uh, uh, Ross was part of the 3rd Infantry Division, the 30 Infantry Regiment. So they actually fought the war together. And then afterwards, uh, General McCarr was at, at Fort Myer. Ross Calvert uh, was there uh, as the executive officer for the honor uh, honor. Uh, guard at the tombs of the unknown mm-hmm. general eisenhower was there and in qu- quarters one of course as general for the army and so that year of fighting discharge uh, ross calvert uh and and dad played uh bridge with general eisenhower uh, almost every week mamie served them <laughs> wow uh, so served them refreshments and uh, mamie was also a bridge player but she wouldn't play with the general she said he got too animated and the and the rumor at fort meyer was that eisenhower actually chose his command staff based upon their ability to play bridge so, oh <laughs> uh, i never it, heard that it's a it was an interesting story uh, when, da- <laughs> when dad lost his leg and was uh uh being shipped out of reims france general eisenhower actually came to the hospital plane and, and saw him off and then they stayed close friends uh, throughout the years uh because of uh dad serving as the as mccarr's executive officer at fort meyer he was in charge of the honor brigade and so often at the white house and became friends with harry truman um in fact harry truman had been in the army in world war one a decorated officer and so he would have the the men after say there was a big ceremony at the white house afterwards he would have the honor guard come down into the kitchen basement kitchen and he would have his personal bartender mix up drinks there was a piano down there and truman was a piano player and they would talk about singing when the caissons go marching marching in so he kept in touch with uh generals true scott and young had at least uh he had he had seen Winston Churchill at the uh, the the Southern France D-Day, August fifteenth, mm-hmm. in nineteen forty-four, and then Winston Churchill came to visit Eisenhower at Fort Myer, and so he was able to interact again with Winston Churchill, and then because he had taken over, uh, he he fought with two Medal of Honor awardees. One was Maurice Footsie Brits. Right. Um, Footsie actually lost his arm, and Dad took over. L Company, uh, Love Company of the 3rd Battalion of the 30 Infantry. And then uh, Dad, one of his most severe wounds, not the one in which he lost his leg, but another wound on that same leg. He was actually shipped to France where he, uh, from, from northern France, from the Vosges down to southern France where he recovered. And his bedmate was Audie Murphy. And so he became great friends with Audie oh, Murphy, wow. <laughs> their, their nurse that took care of them in the a field hospital there. Audie Murphy ended up uh, proposing to her several times. Uh, she turned him down several, several oh, times. No. <laughs> so there's these wonderful stories of these well-known people that interacted uh, really with the frontline guys. Such an amazing story. And the book is called At First Light. Walt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been wonderful. It's been a treat for me. Uh, Rob, you do such a great job of, of honoring military men and women. They deserve to be remembered. They deserve to be honored. And when we look back at World War II, almost all of them are gone to glory now. But General True Scott, 
when he addressed uh, the, the graves at Anzio, said this. He said, we cannot look back on them if we don't look forward to the future for which they fought and died. And Rob, you honor that. And I'm grateful to be privileged to join you in honoring those incredible men and women. Well, I'm humbled, sir. Thank you again. And that's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, Hollywood feature film director Ron Maxwell will be here. It's rare that if I go to a public event that somebody doesn't come in and uh, comment uh, on either Gettysburg or Gods and Generals. And it's, you know, deeply appreciated. Uh, you know, a, a person come up to me and, and make a comment on one of those movies. It's, uh, uh, it's meaningful to me. My interview with Ron kicks off our two-part Gettysburg narrative special, Voices from the Front, which you can hear over the July 4th weekend. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.